Well, we describe ourselves as Christians as people of the book, right? We are people who believe the Bible. We believe that it's God's word, and we want to build our lives on God's word. But have you ever noticed that many of the people in the Bible who are supposed to know the Bible actually get the Bible really, really wrong? You ever notice that? That ought to give us pause, right? Because in the New Testament, for example, who are the people who probably thought they knew the Bible best? Pharisees. Are they the good guys in the Bible? No, right? They often get the Bible wrong. And it's not just the Pharisees, but even Jesus' own disciples get rebuked by Jesus for failing to understand what the Bible says and what they should be expecting based on what the Bible says. So if that happens to people in the Bible, do you think that still happens to people outside the Bible? People like us? Do you think there's still people who think they've got a good grip on the Bible, but really they don't? Of course that still happens. Uh, And there are different ways that this happens too, right? Some people um, misunderstand not only what the Bible is about, but what it's for, right? So they might have a Bible somewhere in their house and even a Bible somewhere in their car, not because they ever read it, but because they think if they just have a Bible around, that will somehow protect them from bad things happening. They treat it like a good luck charm. That's not what the Bible's for. There's some people who use the Bible primarily as a rule book. They feel righteous. They feel like they are a good person because they follow the rules that they find in Scripture, or at least the ones that they want to follow, and probably some other ones that aren't actually in the Bible, but they act like they're in the Bible. And they either tell other people all the time, that they're not living up to the rules of the Bible, or at least in their mind, they're always sort of evaluating other people about whether they're good or bad based on whether they're doing all the rules. That's not what the Bible's for, either. Some people use the Bible merely as a source of inspiration for living a good life. They know some things that Jesus said and some things that God said that fits with what they think a good person should do or be. They try to be kind and love people and things like that. And if there's anything in there that they don't think fits with their vision of what a good life looks like, they just ignore those parts because they don't have to take the whole Bible seriously, just the parts that they feel like help them. And... That's all the Bible is for, for them. That also misses the point of the Bible. All three of those approaches, and others we could probably come up with, completely miss the point of what the Bible is about for one simple reason. The whole Bible, the main point of the whole Bible is to point us to Jesus. That's true if we're in Genesis. That's true if we're in John. 
That's true if you're in Isaiah or Psalms or Proverbs. That's true if you're in Revelation or Ephesians. The whole Bible from start to finish is all about Jesus. And any approach to the Bible that emphasizes something else more than Jesus is missing the point. The rules in the Bible are important. When God gives us commands about things we shouldn't, shouldn't do, I mean, we're supposed to follow those. Those are important. But the Pharisees were really good about trying to get people to follow the rules and really bad at recognizing who Jesus was. And because of that, Jesus didn't say, you guys are really good Bible students. You just, there's this one question that, you know, you're missing. No, he told them, you don't understand the Bible. You're missing the point. So Jesus, in John chapter 5, which is where we are this morning, John chapter 5, we're going to pick it up in verse 39 of John 5. What Jesus is doing is this. He's trying to help people who have completely misunderstood the Bible and as a result completely misunderstood Him. He's trying to help them understand why they should believe Him. Why they should believe that He's God, in fact. Because Jesus has just made a claim earlier in chapter 5 that he's equal to God the Father. That he can do what God can do, because he is God. And because of that, some of the Jews want to kill him. They think he's blaspheming, and so they want to get rid of him. And so what Jesus is doing now is he's calling witnesses to testify to the truth that Jesus is, in fact, God. And already he's called John the Baptist as a witness. John the Baptist was pointing to me, testifying about me. He told you that I'm the Son of God. He told you that God himself said to him that I'm the one who's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John said that he wasn't even worthy to untie my sandals because I'm so much greater than him. And that's not true just because I'm a great man. It's true because I'm God who has become man. He's called John the Baptist as witness. He's uh, talked about his works as a witness to who he is. He was able to turn water into wine. He was able to heal a man who'd been an invalid for 38 years. Somebody nobody else could heal or help. Jesus healed him with a word. Who can do that kind of thing? Only God. Jesus also calls... God the Father himself, a witness. God speaks from heaven at Jesus' baptism and says, this is my beloved Son. He'll do the same again later on the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus is transformed in front of three of his closest disciples so that they see his glory that's usually veiled while he's on earth. And God says again, this is my beloved Son. Listen to him. But now, in verse 39, Jesus is going to call another witness, a fourth witness. The witness of the scriptures. And of course, when he says the scriptures, he's talking primarily about the Old Testament. They don't have the New Testament yet, because the New Testament's happening right now, right? 
So here's what he says, starting in verse 39. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So Jesus knows that the people he's talking to are diligent Bible students. This this is not like Paul on uh, Mars Hill in Athens where he's talking to a bunch of uh, Greeks who've probably never even encountered the scriptures and he has to start with who God is. There's only one God and he's not in a temple somewhere, confined to that place like an idol. Jesus is not talking to that kind of person here. He's talking to people who have been raised on the Scriptures. They're Jews. The Old Testament, uh, is that's their holy books. They love these books. They know these books. And he says to them, you search the Scriptures. So they weren't even just people who knew some Bible stories from growing up, and they, you know, they kind of heard, they went to church every once in a while kind of thing, and they knew some of the Bible. These are people who study the Bible. They take the Bible very, very seriously. That's why they're so mad at Jesus. Right? They think he's breaking the Sabbath, they think he's breaking God's law, and so they want to get rid of him. They think because they take the Bible so seriously. But Jesus says, you search the scriptures because, and here's the problem, they're studying the Bible for the wrong reason. Do you know there's a wrong reason to study the Bible? I mean, we're always happy when people are studying the Bible, but there is a wrong way to study the Bible, a wrong reason to study the Bible. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. You think you're saved, we would say, or you're going to have eternal life because you study the Bible. You think by opening your Bible every day and memorizing passages and reading passages, you think that by doing that, you have received eternal life just because that's what you do. You can go to all the Bible studies you want and not be saved. And that doesn't mean you shouldn't go to Bible study or shouldn't study the Bible. We should, right? And we should study the Bible because we want eternal life. That's good. But we shouldn't study the Bible thinking that the act of studying the Bible is what gives us eternal life. That's the problem. Memorizing scripture doesn't make you a Christian. Going to Bible studies doesn't make you a Christian. 
You can do all those things and still miss out on being a Christian if you miss Christ. Right? That's the problem. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, Jesus says. So the books you are so faithfully studying, they're telling you about me. But you're missing that. You're just focused on the book itself and not what the book is about. The book is about me, but you're missing me. You're just focusing on the book, thinking that because you have the book, that you're okay. But you're not okay without me. That's why the book is telling you about me. But here's the problem. He says at the, uh, the end of, or in verse 40, Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So the Bible is there to say, Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. When Jesus comes, He will deliver you. He will save you. You need to trust in Him. Here's what He's going to look like. Here's what He's going to do. Be watching for Him. Be eager for His appearing. And when He comes, put your trust in Him. And here's Jesus right in front of them. And they've got their nose stuck in the book and want to get rid of Him. That's a problem. That's a problem. The book is there to point them to Him. But when He's standing right in front of them, they use the book against Him. Why? Because they totally misunderstood the book. It's possible to think very highly of this book and completely misunderstand what it's for. This book is not here to make you feel good about yourself. It is not here to give you a series of steps that you have to climb to get up to heaven. It is not for that. This book is here to say there is only one way for a sinner like you and me to be made right with God. God has provided the way. That way is His Son. Here's who He is. Put your trust in Him. That's what the book is for. That's how we should approach the book. And that's how we should use the book. If we're using the book to beat people over the head with it, instead of point to Jesus with it, we're misusing the book. Because we're misunderstanding the book. We're just like the Pharisees. We don't want to be like the Pharisees. We want to be like Jesus. We want to point people to Jesus. Now, how can people who diligently study the Bible, pay attention to the Bible, so badly miss what the Bible is telling them? I want to know the answer to that because I don't want to waste my time reading the Bible and missing the point of the Bible. If I'm going to read the Bible, I want to, I want to get what it's for, right? I want to get the point. I want to respond to it rightly. So how do we prevent ourselves from being like the Pharisees and others who had the Bible and took the Bible seriously but so badly misunderstood the Bible? Jesus 
points to the ways that these people got it wrong. And by pointing to how they got it wrong, he gives us a warning about how to keep from getting it wrong ourselves. So in verse 42, he gives, he gives three examples of things that they're getting wrong. The first one's in verse 42. He says, I know that you do not have the love of God within you. Now, he doesn't mean God doesn't love them. Because that's not true. Right? God loves the world. That's John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He's not saying God doesn't love you. He's saying to them, you don't love God. You don't have love for God within you. Now, they probably would have strenuously objected to that. Right? Because at the very heart of what God commands His people in the Old Testament is that verse, a pair of verses in Deuteronomy 6 that we call the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. If there's one thing a good Jew was trying to do, it was to love the Lord their God with all their heart and soul and mind and strength. They thought, no doubt, that they were loving God by seeking to get rid of Jesus. Because they thought Jesus was blaspheming God. And they thought Jesus was breaking God's law. How do we know they didn't love God even when they thought they did? Here's how we know. God was standing right in front of them and they wanted to kill him. I mean, that's pretty easy when you think about it. Jesus is not, you know, making some wild deduction, multi-step argument that we have to kind of try to follow. How, how did he get to, how did he know that they don't love God? He's God and they hate him. They don't love God. They've got the Bible, but they don't love God. They've got the rules, but they don't love God. And that's not just because they have, you know, misunderstood some complicated Old Testament prophecies or something. That's not the problem here. Even in the Old Testament, God makes very clear to his people who he is and what he's like. When he revealed himself to Moses in Exodus 33 and 34... What he said about himself was, this is who I am. He says, the Lord, the Lord, that's him. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And here walks into the world Jesus, the perfect embodiment of exactly who God is. The perfect embodiment of grace and mercy and love and forgiveness and kindness. And they say, that's not how God acts. God doesn't heal people on the Sabbath. God doesn't eat with tax collectors and Pharisees. I mean, not Pharisees. uh, Tax collectors and prostitutes. God doesn't love people like that. God's not merciful toward people like that. And they're dead wrong. Jesus showed up to show us what God is like. And the people who hated him, hated him because they didn't love the real God. 
The God that they thought they were serving was not the God of the Bible. The God that they had in their mind was a God who was all about judgment and punishment for those who weren't as good as them. That's what they thought. But that's never been who God is. They misunderstood not only the prophecies about Jesus, they understood God's teaching about Himself so that when God Himself showed up, they did not recognize Him. And they wanted nothing to do with Him. The second problem they have is in verse 43. I have come in my Father's name, Jesus says, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. So, if some guy wanders in here, Jesus says, and just on his own authority, on his own name, tells you he's somebody important, he's somebody great, you're probably going to give him a hearing. But because I say that I come in my Father's name, you won't even listen to me. You won't receive me. You've rejected me. you got your priorities all messed up. And Jesus comes in humility. And most of the rest of us, when we present ourselves to the world, we do so in pride. And we're more likely to listen to people like that because we can relate to that. They're like us. Jesus is not like us. He comes with a level of humility that none of us have. And at least initially... We're usually repulsed by that. If you don't think that's true, think mainly about the cross. Where is it that Jesus has most fully put on display who he is and why he came? It's the cross. What do people who aren't Christians think about the cross? They're usually repulsed by it. Uh, Even in the time of the New Testament, right? People didn't want, many people did not want a God who could die, a Savior who was crucified, a deliverer who was treated like a criminal, that, they didn't want that. But somebody who you know, could boast and put on a big show and talk about how great they are, yeah, buy tickets to hear that guy. The third reason is in verse 44. He says, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. Okay, here's the big one. What does it mean to receive glory from people? You want people to praise you. You want people to like you. You want people to say good things about you. I want people to say good things about me, right? I'd like people to like me rather than not. That by itself is not bad. The problem is they have chosen that instead of seeking the glory that comes from God. Wanting God to speak well of them. Wanting God to say, you did the right thing. You handled that the right way. You've chosen the right path. In our best moments, if we're Christians, right, We want that more than we want people to speak well of us. That's why sometimes we do things that people make fun of us for, or, you know, disagree with us about, or maybe even get mad at us about, because we're trying to do what we know God wants us to do, and we care more about what God thinks about us than what people think about us. 
What Jesus is saying to these people is, you don't care more about what God thinks of you than what people think of you. You care more what people think about you than what God thinks about you. And in that situation, how in the world are you ever going to believe? Because believing God and following Jesus is going to put you at odds with plenty of people. And not always the people you expect. Jesus even warned his disciples that sometimes it would be their own family who they would be divided from because of following Jesus. Are you willing to endure that? Are you willing for your family to think you're nuts for following Jesus? Sometimes that's what's required. If you're not willing, how can you believe him, follow him, trust him? Jesus is telling these people who think that their primary motive is loving God and honoring God, that their actual primary motive is being loved by people, and that's why they don't believe. That's a little scary, right? I want to watch out for that, because that's, that's really easy to do. Really easy to do. The last point that Jesus makes was probably the most devastating, or would have been if they believed it. I doubt they believed it. But here's what Jesus said in verse 45 and 46. He says, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. Moses. Later on, I believe it's in John chapter 9 when Jesus heals the man born blind. Um, that, that man and his interaction with some of the religious leaders, they're asking him questions about who healed him and how and you know something along those lines. And he says, basically, why do you keep asking all these questions? Do you want to be his disciples too? And they say, oh, no, 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 no. We're disciples of Moses. We know God spoke to Moses. We don't know if he's spoken to Jesus or not. We know God's spoken to Moses. We're followers of Moses, not of this Jesus guy. So here's what Jesus says. Do you know who's going to stand before the Father and accuse you, it's not going to be me. It's going to be Moses. The one you have set your hope on. You think because you pay so much attention to the words of Moses that you are going to be fine. But guess what? You don't even believe Moses. You don't even understand what Moses said. Because Moses wrote about me. So if you were good disciples of Moses, you would now be my disciples. If you really followed Moses, you would end up following me. Because Moses wrote to point you to me. But then he says in verse 47, if you don't believe his writings, how will you believe my words? You've got five books worth of Moses telling you who I am and how to recognize me and what to look for when I come, and you've missed all of that. It's not any surprise that now that I'm here, you don't believe me. Now, that's a pretty big claim. So, 
What does he mean? Where did Moses write about Jesus? What did he say that they should have picked up on so that when Jesus came, they recognized who he was? Well, let's just start with Genesis. Moses wrote Genesis, right? In Genesis chapter 3, Moses records that God said to the serpent that there's going to be hostility between the serpent and the woman and between her offspring and his offspring and that there was going to come a child born of the woman who would crush Satan's head. Where's that child going to come from? He's going to come from the family of Abraham. That's the reason Moses spends so much time talking about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. It's through Abraham and his family that God is going to bless the world through a child. Isaac is a picture of what that child is going to be like. Isaac was born in supernatural circumstances. His parents were old. His uh, mother was barren. There was no hope. Naturally speaking, for them having a child, but God promised Abraham that he would give him a wife, excuse me, a child by Sarah, his wife, and he did. Isaac, born in their old age, born despite Sarah's barrenness. And then that beloved son of Abraham and Sarah, God tells Abraham to sacrifice. He takes him up on a mountain, he prepares the wood and everything for the offering. He's going to give up. His beloved son. And then an angel of God tells Abraham to stop and not sacrifice the child. And instead there's a ram there in the thicket that God provided instead as a substitute in the place of the son to die. So that this beloved son wouldn't have to. After Isaac comes Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. One of those sons, his favorite son, is Joseph. We know he's the favorite son because he gets the nice fancy coat. All his brothers hate him. don't like the favorite son. They throw him in a pit. They want to kill him. But instead he's sold into slavery, taken down into Egypt. There he's falsely accused and thrown in jail. But from that place, he's... Raised up to second in command in Egypt. God puts him in that place so that he can store up grain to provide for people so that they are delivered from the famine. So that people all over the world will be saved rather than die because of the famine that's come upon the land. All of that is about Jesus. Jesus is like Joseph. He's betrayed by one of his own group of twelve. Just like Jacob's 12 sons. He's betrayed. In his case, he's actually put to death. But then he's raised up, exalted to God's right hand to provide salvation. He's like Isaac, the beloved son, who in this case is actually sacrificed. The ram that was substituted for Isaac reminds us that when Jesus dies, he dies not for himself, but for others, for us. He's the child who comes from the woman who crushes the serpent's head. That's why when he's about to go to the cross, he says, now is the judgment of this world, and now is the ruler of this world cast out. It's through his death that he conquers Satan. And we can just keep going. In Exodus, the Passover, 
The lamb that's slaughtered and the blood is put over the doorpost so that God's judgment would pass over His people and they could be delivered from slavery. That's Jesus. He's the Passover lamb. He's the lamb of God who sheds His blood so that God's judgment passes over us so that we're delivered from slavery to sin and instead brought into a new and better promised land, ultimately the new heavens and the new earth. That's just the first book and a half of Moses. That's what Jesus is talking about when he said, if you had really paid attention to what Moses said and understood it and believed it, we wouldn't be having this conversation. You wouldn't be trying to get rid of me and put me to death. You would be following me. You'd be hanging on my every word. You would be one of my disciples. You would believe me because you had believed Moses. But you didn't believe Moses. And that's why you don't believe me. And so Moses himself, one day, is going to accuse you and say, I tried to tell them, but they wouldn't listen. They wouldn't listen. The Bible is not a good luck charm. And it is not primarily a rule book. The Bible is mainly a book about God and about how God loves sinners. I mean, from Genesis 3 on, that's who we all are. If God didn't love sinners, He would have just destroyed the whole thing and we wouldn't be here. There'd be no story. But He does love sinners. He loves you and me. And He demonstrated that love by sending His Son to save us. He promised that from the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3. And He kept that promise over hundreds and thousands of years. And He sent that Son into the world to do just what He said He would do. To take our place, to take our sin upon Himself so that we could finally be reconciled to God. So that we could be back in His family. So that we could dwell with Him in His presence. That's why He sent the Holy Spirit. So that everybody who believes in Jesus now has God Himself dwelling in us. Because He saved us to be with us. So that we could be with Him. That is what the Bible is about. So search the Scriptures. Study the Bible. Memorize the Bible. Pour your life into the Bible. Not because the Bible itself has any power to give you life. But because the Bible is all about the one who does. It's all about Jesus. And He can give us life. Let's not miss Him. Let's pray.